Uh, we're starting a new series today in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. And um, I uh, spent, uh, I've spent about the last two months preparing for this series. We've had this idea since probably last year. But the last two months, I've spent a lot of time just reading and praying and preparing and thinking about, like, how could I introduce this series to us? What would be the best way, the best possible way to talk about the Gospel of Matthew? And so I came up with this sentence, but my lips hurt real bad. But my lips hurt real bad. Or maybe better said, but my lips hurt real bad. Now, how many of you understand the words that, I'm going to ask for some audience participation, okay? Hands up. How many of you understand the words up on the screen or the words that just came out of my mouth, but my lips hurt real bad, okay? That should be everyone. If you didn't put up your hand, you're not listening to what I'm saying. Okay, let's try it again. How many of you understood the word, okay, these words up on the screen? So, how many of you are confused by these words? Okay, good. I'm wondering, this, is, this will be an interesting one because I'm, I'm in the middle age group of, of some of you. There are people who are younger and people who are older. You may all miss me on this one. But what you might think is like, this is a super weird way to start a series. Like, can we just get this guy some chapstick? and move on, like I don't know what's going on with his lips, but like let's move on to the next stage of whatever this is. And so this statement is a very confusing one for some of us. But how many of you know what I'm talking about? That I'm not actually referencing my lips whatsoever. Hands up, okay, we've got a couple people in here. So a few people in this room know what I'm talking about, which is the cultural phenomenon that happened in the early 2000s called Napoleon, Napoleon Dynamite, this wonderful, Wonderful movie. Uh, here's how Wikipedia describes the movie. It's a story about a socially awkward high schooler who deals with several dilemmas. You could see why I like this movie as a socially awkward high schooler. I was in university by that time, but still. He has some dilemmas. He befriends an immigrant who wants to be class president. He awkwardly pursues a romance with, fellow st with a fellow student, and he lives with his very quirky family. So this is what I am referencing. And specifically, just so you can fully understand the amazingness of this movie and where this reference comes from, here is the actual clip of what I'm referencing. Hi. Is Grandma there? No, she's getting her hair done. What do you need? Can you just go get her for me? I'm really busy right now. Well, just tell her to come get me. Why? Because I don't feel good. Well, have you talked to the school nurse? No, she doesn't know anything. Will you just come get me? No. Well, will you do me a favor then? What? Can you bring me my chapstick? No, Napoleon. But my lips hurt real bad. Just borrow some from the school nurse. I know she has like five sticks in her drawer. I'm not going to use hers, you sicko. Oh, idiot. All right, maybe slightly hard to hear. But this is how the whole movie is, the entire movie. If you like that clip, you probably like the movie, and uh, also the wonderful follow-up, Nacho Libre, which was also a cultural phenomenon all in itself. But when I was in university, my friends and I were obsessed with this movie. We would quote it to each other all the time. Uh, some of my friends bought these t-shirts. Maybe you have them yourself. Uh, in some drawer or a time capsule. 
uh, we would uh, dress up. There's many people who dressed up at, at Halloween as the Napoleon Dynamite crew, like this group of people here. As the vaguely Asian person, I was always playing the part of Pedro as the vaguely Hispanic person uh, in my community. Um, and then, of course, if, if you may not know Napoleon Dynamite, but you might know this dance. And some people uh, learned the, the whole dance. You can go to the next slide. Uh, the dance of Napoleon Dynamite. If you don't know anything, this is probably one of the things that you might remember from the movie. But the point is, like, we watched this show religiously. We watched it so many times, and it became part of, like, our story and our language and part of our everyday life, uh, Napoleon Dynamite. And so all of us understood this statement that I put up on the screen, right? My, but my lips hurt real bad. You understood what it means that I said this statement, that these words are up on the screen. But we didn't all have the same reaction to this statement. And the difference in our reactions is not a moral one, or it doesn't, it's not have any, it doesn't have anything to do with our intelligence. It just has to do with the familiarity of the story, of the story of Napoleon Dynamite. Did you know and love this movie enough that when I wrote these words down and when you saw them on the screen, the first thing that came to your mind was like this fantastic movie from the early 2000s? So you might be thinking, what does this have to do with the Gospel of Matthew? Let me read our text for today for us. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz and Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed and by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, and Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa, Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shelatiel. Shelatiel fathered Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel fathered Abiad. Abiad fathered Eliakim, and Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok, and Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliad, and Eliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So how do you react to this long, long list of names, this genealogy? Well, without context, we're like, this is the most boring thing in the world. These are the parts of the Bible that we tend to skip over. And in fact, it's a very bizarre way to start a book about what's supposed to be the most important person, not only in this book, but in the history of the world, right? And most of us, just reading through that, you probably blacked out somewhere, like in the second or third slide where you're just like, I almost did. I'm just like, these things are just blurring together. And you might think to yourself, like, this right here is exactly why I don't even read the Bible. You know, I, I sit down, maybe you started the new year, and you're like, okay, this year, I'm going to do it. And then you get partway into the story, and you're just like, two pages of genealogies. You're like, I just have so much better things I could do with my morning. And, and we want to get right to the point, which is kind of the last verse. 
Jesus is the Messiah. It's like, why do we have to go through all of that? Just give me the information. Jesus is the Messiah, and we can move on. Yet this is how Matthew chooses to start his gospel. This is how he assumes that his readers will have a very, very different reaction to the one that all of us just had. That his readers will enter into like a full-orbed narrative and a world full of meaning and a world in which they find their place. Similar to when you hear the statement from Napoleon Dynamite, if you watch the movie as many times as I did when I was in my youth. We, generally speaking, however, we don't share their world and their story, which needs to remind us of what I often say, that the gospel is written for us, but it is not written to us. It's written for us, but it's not written to us. Everybody here is a year older or will be in 2022, but none of us are 2,000-year-old Jews, as far as I can tell, just by looking out on the crowd. And so the story and the, the audience that Matthew is writing to is not us. And so, but what he is doing is inviting us to learn the backstory. Like, I watched the movie Napoleon Dynamite probably a hundred times throughout the years. Matthew is trying to invite us to do the same, to learn the backstory so that we can come to see the significance of this person that he's going to put forward in front of us, Jesus the Messiah. And that's what we're going to be doing in this series, is we're going to be looking at a lot of backstory, because that's a lot of what Matthew does, so that we can make sense of his references and hopefully come to worship and follow this Jesus that he's putting ahead of us. So let's get started today by looking at the first two words in this genealogy in Matthew, the first two words in the book of Matthew. It starts in English, an account of the genealogy. Now, this word account in the Greek is the word biblos, which should sound very familiar. It's where we get our word Bible from. And the word just means a record or a scroll. And the second word is the word genesis, which is the root word. The root word of it is the word we would pronounce it genesis. So biblos, genesis. And just like in our Advent series, Matthew is calling us back to the first book in our Bible, the book of Genesis, the start of the story. He starts his story this way, and he's calling us to look all the way back to the beginning of the story. And so what do we see in the very beginning of the story, the beginning of the Bible? Well, we're introduced to two people, Adam and Eve, and their names literally mean humanity and life. And so what the Bible is trying to signal to us is that these, in these characters, there's something that's true about each one of us, about any of us who would call ourselves human and have life. And so God tells these human beings that there are, uh, what it means to be human involves three things in general. The first is that they are to reflect God. We talked about this in our last series. In the biblical idea or in the Hebrew idea, God is in heaven, he's above. And so what it means to be a human is to be like an angled mirror, that we reflect God's grace and his glory and his light into the world as we focus ourselves on him. We we can take his light and reflect it into the world. And so that's the first thing of what it means to be a human. The second is that we are called to reign and rule in chapter 1 of the Bible. That humans are to reign and rule. Now this doesn't mean to go and be like a dictator or anything like that. But it means to reflect this God that we've seen creating. Creating spaces of shalom. Creating spaces of flourishing. That that's also our job as humans is to walk into the world, into the places of desert, in the places of chaos water, and to bring God's reign and rule into those places. So reflect God, to reign and rule, and the final thing that the people are encouraged to do is to be fruitful and multiply. Now there's many ways of doing this. Anytime that we cultivate the world or we steward our environment, we're, we're being fruitful and we're multiplying in the world. Anytime that we work together and work together with God to create culture, 
we are being fruitful and multiplying in the world. And any, we are also fruitful and multiply when we partner with God and partner with each other to create new life in children, in babies, so that the next generation can follow God and carry on his work in the world. So there's a very physical component to that, having babies, being fruitful, and multiplying. And I'm just so grateful to say that as reality, we have taken that just so literally um, and continue to have another banner year of babies lined up ahead. But Genesis structures itself, the first book of the Bible structures itself around this idea of being fruitful by giving us 10 genealogies. So you thought this one genealogy in Matthew was boring? There's 10 in the gospel or in, in Genesis. And if any of you have started on like a Bible reading plan, you're like, Genesis starts pretty fun, pretty interesting. And then there's just loads of genealogies and that's where you kind of want to quit. Um, but that's the organizational principle of Genesis is all these genealogies. If you want to nerd out on it, you can go check. It's called the Toledot formula. That's what it means. Uh, that's the way that Genesis is organized. But what it's trying to signal to us as the readers and as the listeners is that here is how all of these genealogies are how, despite our unfaithfulness, God has continued to be faithful. God continues to put his hands out to unfaithful people and say, I want to partner with you to do all these things, to reflect me into the world to reign and to rule, to create places of shalom and to be fruitful and multiply. So that's, that's what is happening in Genesis. So what do we have in Matthew 1? We have another list of people, a list of people who God has partnered with to be fruitful and multiply into the world. Now next week, we're going to actually look at this passage again. Um, so mark it in your calendars. I know you're very excited about it. Um, but we'll look at some specific characters in the genealogy. But today, I want to just look at the three movements of this genealogy to help us understand the story that Jesus comes into, the context for who he is as a person in this genealogy. So there's three distinct movements in the genealogy. The first is from Abraham to David, from Abraham to David. So in this person, Abraham, in this story of the Old Testament, God finds this guy. He's an absolute nobody. But God comes to him and puts his hand out and says, I want to partner with you. I want to, I, and he makes him this great promise that even though you're no one, and Abraham and his wife are very old and they don't have kids, so they have not been successful in being fruitful and multiplying, God says, I'm going to make you into a great people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you children, and I'm going to bless you in order that you would be a blessing to the entire world. So this is a, a restatement of Genesis 1. God comes into this person's life, and he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, and I'm going to bless you in order that you can bless the rest of the world. And I don't know about you, but those words are words that I long to be true about my own life, that I would be blessed and that I would be a blessing to other people. You know, I'm a pretty pessimistic person by nature, so if you think of the dichotomy of, like, blessing or cursing, I definitely end up more on the curse side of, like, looking at the pessimism and the negative things in my own life. But I do long for those words in my life, to be blessed. Uh, last year, we preached through the Gospel of Mark, and one of the passages that just stood out to me so much, and we'll look at it again this year, is when Jesus is baptized. It's before he's done anything on earth, but the words that God says to him is, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Before he's done anything, God comes and blesses him. And I think for all of us, we've had those moments where people have come into our lives and just said words of blessing over us. And, and maybe even the membership check-in can be some of those times. But we long for those times of blessing, at least I know I do, where people come into my life and I feel blessed. 
and I long to be a blessing into the world. Many of us here, we long to see the world changed, to see the world healed. Lots of us are interested in nonprofit work or in helps professions. It's this desire to be a blessing, to leave the world as a better place than when we found it. And this is, uh, this is something that I think is deeply long, a deep longing of mine and deep longing for many of us in this room, and then a deep longing for many of us in our world, that we long to be a blessing to our world. So that's what God comes and he says to Abraham, I have come to you to bless you and make you into a blessing for the rest of the world. So how does, how does Abram do in the story of the Bible? Well, he does both pretty good and pretty bad. He and his wife, Sarah, even though they're very old, they have a, do- a child. Um, and it's this child of the promise, this one who will uh, take this, this, through this child, Jesus will actually come. But at the same time, in the story of Abram, he goes and he impregnates his wife's slave, possibly raping her. So a couple no-nos in that passage. So he doesn't do very, very well in that area. And so in Abram, we see this mixed bag of character, that there's some great things that happen through him, that through him comes this line of blessing into the world, but also he unleashes havoc into the world as well. And we see the same in his lineage of children. But there's this hanging promise of being blessed in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. So that's the first movement in the story, and it goes from Abraham to David. So David, King David, is, is the next big figure that Matthew points out, that he is, uh, has this offer to partner with God. So the role of the king was to be the representative of God before the people. So we've got the people of Israel here, you can imagine, on earth. We've got God in heaven, and the king was a person who sat right in the middle. He represented the king, uh, he represented the people of God, or he represented specifically God to the people. And so God says to him, you will reign and rule my people as I reign and rule in the world. Now again, I don't know about you, but this is something that I long for. It's just good leadership. And someone who will come and represent God to us, someone who will use their powers for good and rather than evil, and, and someone who knows what God is calling us towards and the courage to lead us there. So how does King David do in this position that God has offered his hand out to him and says, I want to partner with you to bless the world? Is is David a good guy or a bad guy? Well, on one hand, David is kind of like the best. Um, It says in in the, uh, the passages about him that he is a man after God's, the center of who God is, that he pursues God with everything. But on the other hand, we see that David, uh, at one point in time, has his armies out at battle. And he sees his friend's wife, and so he brings her into his palace. He sleeps with her. He impregnates her. And then he sends his friend into battle to be killed so that he can marry this woman. Again, just a terrible, terrible story. And, and so David is, this again, this mixed bag of things. And his decisions for good lead to some good things for Israel. But his decisions for evil and the, the things that he's done also wreak havoc in the world. And there's this dangling promise that we get once again from the narrative of David, that there will be this future king, this great king who will come and represent God well to us and lead us well. So the capital K king who will will come. And, And this unfulfilled hope carries on into the story, even as we see David's kids, some of them good, some of them terrible, carrying this narrative forward. So that's the second movement. And then the third movement is from exile to the Messiah. That's the third movement in this story. And if you're reading this genealogy later, which I hope you will, this is where the names get super unfamiliar. 
like Abiud, Abiud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok. I think like I've read the I read the Bible every year, uh, and probably for the last 15 years, and I probably couldn't tell you where any of these people are in the Bible. We don't have a lot of stories about Azor, you know, or songs that we sing in Sunday school. Like, you know, who built the ark? Noah, Noah, and his friend Azor, who was probably a priest. You know, it just doesn't go like that. We don't have those, uh, at least I didn't in my Sunday school. So we're way less familiar with these folks, and we're way, way less familiar with this idea of exile as well, because we're Westerners. So we could just pick up and move to another place, and we don't really think about it other than the relationships that we need leave behind. But when we think of God's story, there's kind of three terms that we can think of when we want to think of what God's optimal place or idea of what the world will be like is. It's three terms. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. And basically, Israel was sent into exile. They were kicked out of God's place, kicked out of their homeland because of their unfaithfulness. They were not living, they're God's people, but they were not living under God's rule, so God kicked them out of their place. And as I talked about in our Advent series, they would feel a deep sense of shame that they are captives in Babylon and this huge longing and desire to go back to their homeland, to be at home. And at this point, we're also forced to see that the problem is not just a few bad eggs in Israel's history. The problem isn't just people like Abraham or the people like David. But it's all of Israel. Here's how one commentator, Richard Hayes, says it. He says, here we see the significance of the genealogy. It compels the reader to understand that the sins from which God's people are saved are not merely petty individual transgressions of a scrupulous legal code. It's not just that Israel, a couple people in Israel forgot to keep the Sabbath for a little while. Or that they forgot to do 10% of the sacrifices that they were supposed to do. He says, but rather the national sins of injustice and idolatry that finally led to the collapse of the Davidic monarchy and the Babylonian captivity. The problem with these people is then the reason that they've been kicked out, that they're in exile, that they're not in God's place, is because they've turned their hearts in a different direction. Their stories are off, and at the core of who they are, there's something wrong. And so we see two themes in this, in this section of the genealogy in Matthew. Matthew. First is this theme of longing. Israel has been banished from God's place and God's presence, and they just long to go home. And at the same time, we see this theme of hopelessness and powerlessness, especially in the writings of this time. How can we ever become a people of pure heart? How can we change? If, if, if this problem is in us so deeply, how can we change? How can we become a new people? And again, I resonate with that. This longing to, to go home, for example. So like I said, my wife had to stay in, in Texas with her family as we uh, came home. And so she's, she's living uh, at their house. You know, they live in a suburban house. She kind of has like a little wing to herself. And uh, she's doing just fine. They're taking wonderful care of her. She probably is getting to eat Texas barbecue maybe even right now as I speak, okay? She's doing fine. Her parents are wonderful people. She has a roof over her head. She has food. We're all fine here. We've all tested negative for COVID. We're doing just fine. My kids are eating. Thank you very much. Uh, they're eating vegetables too. Thank you very much. We're all doing okay. But when I talk to my wife on the phone, even though everybody's okay, even though we know, Lord willing, she'll be able to come home in like 10 days, she just wants to be home. I don't know if you've ever felt that feeling before. You just want to be at home. Imagine with no end, 
It's like the chapel situation times a million. Everybody is displaced. You don't know when you're going home. That's what Israel is facing. And I, I don't know if you've ever felt that, but there's that feeling sometimes that I know I get of just that longing to be home. That's what Israel's feeling. I resonate with it. And this, this idea of losing hope. I forgot to make a slide for this, but I read a book uh, an atheist friend of mine recommended uh, to me. It's called Humanity. It's like this 700-page book, uh, and this sociologist wrote it, just looking at the last century of humanity and asking, like, hey, what's up when we look at uh, all the things that have happened over the last 100 years? And let me tell you, it's not positive. Like, the, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in history. And I don't know if you feel like this over the last year with everything that's happened, but there can just be, I feel this sense that like just losing hope. Like what is actually going to help us? We just seem so distracted. We seem so polarized. Like what could actually help us? What could actually bring us hope? And I want to have hope. I, even as a pessimist, deep down in the dark part of my tiny heart, I want to believe, I want to have hope for me, and I want to have hope for us. I resonate with this story and with this desire. And Israel is living this hope, this desire to go home, and this, this, this desire to be changed in exile. And the prophets that Mitch preached about last week, like from Jeremiah, they're always giving these glimpses of hope to the people, that God will bring his people home, that he's going to dwell with them, that they will be his people and he will be their God, that he will give them new hearts, and that his life presence will come and fill us and change us. And that we'll go from being a people that look like a valley of skeletons into people who are full humans. So these are the three movements of the story of Israel in the Gospel of Matthew in this chapter. And we're left with all of these stories and these dangling hopes and promises from the Hebrew scriptures. This vision that, that God has for humanity that we would be blessed. That we would hear God speak to us blessed, well done, faithful servant. That I love you to be a blessing into the world. This promise of his great leader who's going to come and lead us, this king, this anointed one, this Messiah who might come. And then also this hope of coming home from exile and becoming a new people. And so Matthew ends his genealogy like this. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And so this super boring narrative is trying to show us that Jesus is actually the great fulfillment of not only each of the individual stories that are here, but of the whole story of the Hebrew scriptures. That Jesus is the fulfiller of the blessing. That he receives as he comes, well, we'll see as we walk through Matthew, he receives the blessing of God, but he doesn't keep it for himself, but he goes around blessing people and ultimately giving his life to be a blessing for even us today, 2,000 years later. And the invitation of the gospel of Matthew is this, do you want to be a person who's blessed? If, that's, if there's any longing in your heart that I want to hear those words spoken over me, the words of blessing, then come to this Jesus. Watch as he walks in the Gospel of Matthew, that he might have a word of blessing over you and over us. Do you want to be part of healing the world, of blessing the world? Then Matthew's invitation to you is to come to this Jesus, to see how he uses his life to bless the world. Jesus is also the coming king. He's the anointed one, the Messiah, and the great king who lays down his life for his people. And so the invitation is, is for each of us here. Do you long for good leadership in your life? The invitation is for you to come 
as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew together and to look at this Jesus, could he be the one that we are all waiting for to lead us? You know, many of us here are in leadership positions in our jobs or in our families. Do you want to be a good leader? You know, I'm sure there's lots of great parenting books, or you can look at uh, different figures, people that write about um, leadership. But the offer of, of Matthew is to come and look at this person, Jesus, to learn how to redefine your idea of what it means to lead by watching him lead, and to learn to become a person that is leading like him, that he is the true king. That's what Matthew is saying by putting him at the end. And that Jesus is the one who will take us out of exile, that he offers this, if you have any of that itch, that desire to be home. There's a movie on Netflix that, calls, that says, I think it's called, I just don't feel at home in this world anymore. If there's anything like that inside of you, Jesus is, comes to call and invite us home to bring God's life presence in your life. And so if you feel lost, if you feel exile, in exile, the invitation of the Gospel of Matthew and this really weird start to this story is an invitation to come to Jesus, to be recreated, to find home. So Matthew is trying to say that something deeply, deeply embedded in the, in the Hebrew story and in the human condition, that Jesus is the fulfiller of all of these things. That's an important word as we read the Gospel of Matthew together, that he fulfills them. He's the fulfiller of this long, this, this blessing from long, long ago. He's the anointed king, and he's the one who can bring us home from exile and change us at the very heart of who we are. And that's why Matthew starts his gospel in this super weird way. And this is why every year we start by looking at the gospels and looking at Jesus, because he's at the center of every biblical narrative. Every story is an arrow pointing at Jesus. And every person that we meet, every person mentioned in this genealogy is just a shadow of the person that we're going to meet in Jesus. And every hope and every promise finds their fulfillment in him. He's the center and the heart of everything that we do and everything we believe. Hebrews 1 says it this way, Long ago God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son. Jesus is this complete revelation of God. He's the finisher of the story, and he's the one we need to look to. So I just want to close by making two observations. First, is this true for you and for me? Matthew is trying to say, look, all of the stories lead to him. He's the most important person. And I think it's super easy for us to have the right answer. You know, just like we read through the genealogy, and we're just like, blah, 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 blah. at the end, it's like, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. That's the answer to the question. Yeah, Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Let's skip the genealogies and get to the facts. And the gospel of Matthew is really important with how you, it really thinks it's important how you answer the question, who is Jesus? If I was to give you a test, that's a really important question. And it's good to know what the answer is. But by starting his story with a genealogy, he's also trying to give us a different emphasis, which is he's saying to us, how does Jesus relate to your story? How does he relate to the hopes that you have, the dreams that you have, the deepest desires of your heart? This is a centered set type of question in this genealogy. Which way is your arrow pointing in your life right now? The stories that you tell yourself, the things that keep you up late at night, the things that you're longing for, is your arrow pointed at Jesus or is it pointed away? So I can't encourage you enough to take time to do this, to try out this membership check-in just to take some time to ask this question, which way is my life directed? And let's become people whose lives are pointed more towards Jesus in this next year.
The second quick application um, needs, needs a, just a quick little nerd moment for me here first to set this up. So uh, in the Old Testament, we saw that the first book of the Old Testament is Genesis, and it starts with 10 narratives. And then the last book in our Old Testament, if you have a Bible in front of you, is the book of Malachi. Um, but in the, traditionally, the last book in the Old Testament was actually Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, which was one, they couldn't fit it on one scroll, so they made it into two books. Now, the book of Chronicles is also organized by genealogies. I know I'm not really painting a good picture if you're like, I'm going to start reading the Bible this year. You're just like talking about genealogies the whole time. But the Old Testament is bookended. It starts and it ends with genealogies. And Matthew has done the same thing. Remember, Matthew is a hinge book to introduce us to Jesus, and he starts with a genealogy. So we should assume, if he's doing the same thing, if he's trying to say all the, the Hebrew scriptures lead to Jesus, that he's also going to end with a genealogy. So let's look quickly at the last few verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Sorry, that's a bit of a spoiler, but that's how the book ends. Uh, he, he, it kind of works out, um, although in a really weird way, so stick around. Um, but Jesus is saying here, I'm the king over everything. The Messiah, the cosmic ruler, the one that you've been waiting for. And he's about to tell them, this is how you will create a genealogy. This is what I want my family lineage to look like. Go, therefore, he says, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. See, the old language is be fruitful and multiply. But Jesus changes that, and that was done by physically having babies. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's Jesus changes the language into something different here. He says, go and make disciples. This is how God is reaching our, his hand out to us and his hand out to the world, is through making disciples. This is how we participate in God's work in the world. This is how we are going to have a genealogy of faithful people, generation after generation, that is written down, that shows God's faithfulness. So what does making disciples look like? Very quickly, baptizing them. This is bound in set language, that they come into the family of God at a moment in time. But the, the, God, Jesus uses the words, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So this is familial language. In, invite people, he's saying, into the family of God. But then he says, help them grow, help them learn. And this is centered set language. Join in with the Holy Spirit in helping people become like Jesus. This is how we will participate in God's new genealogy of faithfulness, is to go and to make disciples. And so a couple questions for you. Are you, is that, is that part of your life? Are you, are you receiving God's call to be part of disciple making? And if not, I encourage you to think about this, to go and ask yourself, who is around you that doesn't follow Jesus? How can I go to them? You know, I, I think um, we did a series, a quick series on evangelism. If you want to go listen to that stuff, you can go listen to it again. You know, one of the most important things for me, I'm thinking more and more about sharing the good news with people, is just giving them attention. Not getting on Zoom and just like checking out like, how's my hair? How's my lighting? but like all the other people not looking past them, but thinking of them. I am blessed to be a blessing to each of those people, to my family members who don't know Jesus. Am I giving them attention? Am I praying for them, for my neighbors, for my friends? 
How can I give them attention? How can I go to them? And how can I invite them into the family of God? And you've got different people at your life at different stages of that process. It's not going to look the same for everyone, but would you go to them? Would you see this as part of God extending his hand to you and extending his hand to the world? So who around you doesn't follow Jesus? And the second part of making disciples, who around you is following Jesus that you can come alongside of? Friends, spouses, kids, those in your community groups. This is exactly why we've created this membership check-in, is to have a time where we can come alongside of one another and disciple one another. This is the, the message of the Gospel of Matthew. It's an invitation to ask, what kind of story are we writing in the world? And what kind of a genealogy are we a part of? But what kind of a genealogy are we leaving in this world as well? I'll finish with the last words of the Gospel of Matthew. He says, and remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a reminder for us that the God who created the world, the God who appeared to Abraham, the God who anointed David, the God who was faithful in exile, the God who showed up in the person of Jesus is with us right now. This is the word, Emmanuel, God with us, that we don't go alone on this journey. And as we're about to do, we're going to pray together, we're going to sing together and worship together, and we're going to take the bread and the top the cup, take communion together. We do that remembering what he's done, but also reminding ourselves that he is present with us. He is present in our world. His spirit is still hovering in those dark places, wanting to make a genealogy of faithfulness. Let's pray to close. God, thank you for your word and thank you for um, even what is to us as 21st century Western people a very, very bizarre way of starting a book. Um, and introducing the person of Jesus to us. We also thank you that it's an invitation for each of us into your story and to be part of your family and then even to be part of your work in the world. So I, I don't know where each person is at here, but Holy Spirit, we invite you to come, to minister to us, to, sh to show us, to receive that blessing as we sing together that we would sense your spirit with us. We would sense how you're leading and guiding us, that you love us and that you long for us to be part of your work in the world, to be a blessing. So we open ourselves and we open this time to you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.